Coming up on Stu Does America, America's obsessed with Andrew Cuomo all of a sudden. I guess it makes sense when you consider that we were also obsessed with Furbies at one point. Jeremy Boring of The Daily Wire brings us the latest on these little virus things going around that I keep hearing about. And our second Jeremy of the night, Jeremy Dice, talks about religious liberty in the age of coronavirus and the effect banned public gatherings might have. Thank you all for continuing to forego hospital visits and coronavirus tests to get together with your friends and watch this program. I'm sure it won't have any tragic and long-lasting implications on your community. And since you're all together, why not consider signing up for Blaze TV as a group activity? You'll get my show and tons of others, and you can each save 10 bucks when you use the promo code STU. What fun. And if you're just going to kind of continue freeloading on the show on YouTube or Facebook or various podcast platforms, that's cool. We love you, too. But why not donate a few seconds of your time to rate and review us? Uh, We would really appreciate it. Now, everyone grab that last handful of goldfish from the big bowl Jim just coughed into. It's perfectly healthy as long as you pair it with a nice glass of fish tank cleaner. Stu does America. I feel like I'm in an alternate universe. What what is going on? It's like I just walked into a conversation where one guy is saying Michael Jordan is the best player ever, and the other guy is disagreeing, and he's saying, sorry, no, it's Chuck Nevitt. You mean the guy that averaged 1.6 points per game for his entire career? Really? And as I prepare myself for self-immolation, I slowly realize that everyone around me is starting to agree, yes, it's Chuck Nevitt. Charles is the guy. Big Chuckles is the man. And if you don't think so, too, you just don't get it. This is the situation we're in. For some completely unknown reason, people are starting to praise Andrew Cuomo as if he's doing a good job. And it's it's inexplicable. Look at this media coverage. Fauci is America's most prominent infectious disease expert. And yet he's sharing a headline with Andrew Cuomo. How is he in a headline with him as if they're equals? Uh, How about this one? Uh, How coronavirus made Andrew Cuomo America's governor? Yeah, how? how? Or how Andrew Cuomo became a media darling? Yeah, how? Thank God for Andrew Cuomo? Is this a, a CNN headline? I'm not even sure God wants to take responsibility for this one. Andrew Cuomo truly rising to the challenge? Huh? He is? Really? Of course, it all leads back to this. Joe Biden replaced by Andrew Cuomo? Not so far-fetched. Hmm, really? Seriously, I think I understand why people consider Joe Biden to be awful. But why do they suddenly think Andrew Cuomo is good? It was only back in 2018 where he was getting headlines like this. Andrew Cuomo is America's problem now. (laughs) Not exactly positive press. But now he's some American hero because of his performance in the coronavirus crisis. How? What? In this, in this universe, Chuck Nevitt is the best basketball player in history, too, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I know where I am now. I'm in a totally different universe. Before this gets out of hand, let's set the record straight. Andrew Cuomo is awful. He's been horrible in this crisis. Not just mediocre, not kind of bad. Horrible. His first response to the coronavirus was a ridiculous stunt where he said he was going to make cheap hand sanitizer with prison labor. We are introducing New York State clean hand sanitizer 
made conveniently by the state of New York. This is a superior product to products now on the market. Uh, the uh, World Health Organization, CDC, all those people suggest 60% alcohol content. Purell, competitor to New York State Clean, 70% alcohol. This is 75% alcohol. It also has a, comes in a variety of sizes. It has a very nice floral bouquet, a little I detected, lilac, hydrangea, tulips. What does it smell like to you? Number one, this is an incredibly dumb idea. I mean, lilacs, terrible flower for a scent and hand sanitizer. And every thinking American knows it. I'll also note that uh, the government just creating competition for private business is not a good idea. Not at all. Also, having people smell your hands in the middle of the coronavirus crisis is also not a good idea. Another one, even though it would do nothing to help the problem at all, Andrew Cuomo was lying the entire time. Turns out that Cuomo's chain gang wasn't actually making hand sanitizer at all. An outside vendor was making it, and the inmates were just bottling and labeling it. So not only did he lie, he lied about something that wouldn't be helpful if it was true. Good start. To show his leadership, remember, of course, when New York Mayor Bill de Blasio came out and said this. Not only in New York, but in many parts of the country, we have to go to a shelter-in-place model. Mm, really? Okay. Well, what was Cuomo's response? To publicly reprimand Bill de Blasio, which is something I'd almost always cheer on, like I'm at a basketball game in 1984, cheering on Chuck Nevitt. But this time, de Blasio was actually right. There's not going to be any quarantine uh, where we contain people within an area, or we block people from an area. Uh, individual mobility is what we're all about. Uh, there's not going to be any you-must-stay-in-your-house rule. Hmm. Now, this all happened on March 17th. Three days later, on March 20th, Cuomo had instituted a stay-in-your-house rule. The biggest decision he's had to make in the entire crisis, he made and then publicly reversed himself in three days. That is leadership. Hmm. We hear what a great communicator uh, Andrew Cuomo is. Uh, really? Because I think both Cuomos suck. The leader who knows the reality better than any other right now, at least in New York, is the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, of course, my brother. Thank you for coming back to the show. Mom told me I had to. The only thing that happened here is the lens changed. I'm doing what I do, and I've been doing it the same way. And I look the same as I've always looked. Which to be fair, the, way you look, the reason possible, I'll irrelevant. get to that. I'll, I'll get to that. Um, one, I'm hearing your fingernails like scratch on something like you're nervous. I know you're busy. There's always time to cut your fingernails and call your mom. Because you know that what people are saying about how you look really can't be accurate. So it must be hard for you to make sense of what is real and, and what is true now. I, I feel for you. La jealousia. Tu sei no. la jealousia. You no. are jealous, Always straight. Brother. Right Always across jealous. the plate. Straight across the plate. My little brother. Don't worry, there's still time, there's hope for you. One day you can grow up to be like me. 
I've tried to be like you my whole life. Isn't that hilarious? So adorable. Sure, thousands of people are in danger of death from a killer virus, but <laughs> you guys have your cute little sibling moment on the, on the TV. Answer me this. How does Chris Cuomo objectively cover Andrew? Remember, President Trump is constantly bashed for doing interviews with friendly media. You think Andrew is getting a tough question from Chris? I doubt it. This is CNN, apparently. And speaking of Trump, uh, he rightly has been criticized for his comments that were incredibly flippant about this threat back in late January and early February. For example, when he said, what is the bottom line? What does this mean? People are reacting like it's the Ebola virus. This is not the Ebola virus. This hysteria that you see, this fear that you see, the panic that you see, it's unwarranted. Oh, wait, that that was not Donald, not Donald Trump. OK, I'm sorry. That was actually America's governor, Andrew Cuomo. What is the bottom line? What does this mean? People are reacting like this is the Ebola virus. This is not the Ebola virus. This hysteria that you see, this fear that you see, the panic that you see is unwarranted. And that wasn't even January or even February. That was two weeks ago in mid-March. He's still saying it's a hysterical panic in mid-freaking March. And while he was blowing off the threat completely, he was also joking with reporters and showing off the worst Irish accent in generations. I'm sorry, Bernadette Hogan. Governor, what point of authority do you have? I knew that one was going to strike home. So, what point of authority do you have on March 17th to close down yes. New York City, St. Patrick's Well, I'm authorized, you know, by St. Patrick. That's who. Oh, yes. I have the highest authorization. Sure. I'll make something perfectly clear. I actually now actively hate Ireland because of Andrew Cuomo. Sorry, that had to happen. All the supposed leadership has come together to this one indisputable fact. Andrew Cuomo is in charge of the worst COVID-19 breakout in the entire world, this side of Italy and Wuhan itself. He acted slowly, incorrectly, and treated it like a joke well into this month. And now his constituents are paying a really, really, really heavy price. Truth is, Andrew Cuomo only has two things working for him. Number one, Bill de Blasio. Anyone looks good next to Bill de Blasio. Cuomo is utilizing the ugly friend at the bar technique. The decent looking girl who brings her ugly friend to the bar to make her look better in comparison. De Blasio is the ugly girl. And the also quite homely Andrew Cuomo is bringing her along as a tag along. Outshining Bill de Blasio is not an accomplishment. Just after de Blasio said no one could go to the gym, where'd you find him? Well, of course, obviously at the gym right before the deadline. Then de Blasio had to make the awkward confession and explanation. I knew in advance that it was a very socially distanced situation. There was almost no one there. Right. I had heard that information prior. Mm -hmm. um, I suspected that we were all going to be about to close them down and this would be the last chance to get some exercise. I got no exercise whatsoever oh, over the weekend. Gosh. I was in this building uh, a huge percentage of the time. Even I need exercise to be able to stay healthy and make decisions. I'm going to figure out some new way to do it going forward. I did not for a moment think there was anything problematic because I knew the dynamics. And again, I have to stay healthy so I can make the decisions for the people of the city. Like I said, Cuomo looks good next to de Blasio, sure. 
You know who else does? Chuck Nevitt. I would much rather have Chuck Nevitt with no governmental experience whatsoever running my state than either one of these two New York nightmares. The other thing Cuomo has going on for him is Democratic desperation. We all like to point and laugh and say how Democrats are so stupid for picking Joe Biden as their nominee. And that's true. And it can't be overstated. But the truth is they know it. They know they are about to enter a general election with a man who might interrupt himself discussing the situation in Syria with an extended rant about pancakes. They know they're in trouble. In Cuomo, they see someone who can at least fake it well occasionally. And their standards are so low, they're looking for a miracle. That's probably a good instinct, but it does not change the facts. Andrew Cuomo has overseen one of the worst disasters in American history that is still unfolding in front of our eyes. He acted late, he acted indecisively, and he acted recklessly. He has put the lives of New Yorkers in serious danger with his constant mishaps and mismanagement. And last but not least, he's ruined the entire country of Ireland for all of us. Joining us now is co-founder and COO of The Daily Wire, as well as host of the excellent podcast, Backstage, which features some folks you might know, like Ben Shapiro, Andrew Clavin, and Michael Knowles. We are honored to have in our presence the one, the only, Jeremy Boring. Thanks for coming on the program, Jeremy. Man, it's good to be here, Stu. Thanks for having me. Let me start with this. What the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, is that all? Yeah. <laughs> Just explain the world to me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems like what's going on is that we're gathering a lot more data on the uh, on the actual effects and, and how widespread this virus is. And it's not pointing in the direction that the so-called experts uh, were saying that it would as recently as a week ago and certainly over the last month. I think what it's possible that what's going on is the largest overreaction in all of human history, not to a virus that isn't serious or isn't lethal, but is nowhere near as serious or as lethal as we were made to believe. It does seem like there is uh, emerging evidence to point in that direction. And I think that, you know, there's always been some people who have kind of been um, brushing this off as not a real threat. Um, And at Hmm. times it seems like it was a little bit of maybe wishful thinking. And we all obviously want it to not be that damaging. Um, But, I mean, we've seen even stuff from uh, Anthony Fauci today who says that maybe this thing winds up just like a really bad flu season. I mean, the fact that this stuff is kind of emerging now is really remarkable. One thing that's remarkable is how quickly the narrative is changing. One of the things we were talking about in my office before I came down to do the hit is, you know, when will we see the cascade effect of this new data? And and listen, it, it's possible let's, we're in the middle of this. The data could turn again uh, in the other direction. But if if the current trends hold, we're going to see a cascade happening in the media soon where people just can't deny the story. And the story is the government acted on bad data across the entire world and took us into maybe the greatest economic catastrophe in living memory, I guess out of a a sense of panic, a sense of fear, a misreading of what was taking place in northern Italy, maybe misinformation coming out of China. I guess it is still early to tell, but I'm one who, who is inclined to think that where we're going is toward that conclusion. Obviously, we all hope that that's uh, true. Uh, You know, it's, it's been interesting to watch this as a story because, um, uh, you think of something like global warming, where they will say the worst things in the world right. are going to happen and they're going to happen in 10 years. There's always 10 years away. And when you get a little closer and it hasn't happened yet, it's still 10 years away. 
Here with this story, hmm. really, they've set down very close by markers and, and, and metrics to judge this by where they're, you know, Gavin Newsom has said 26 million people in California are going to have this in eight weeks. Uh, New York has been saying right. we're going to hit the peak of this in two weeks. It, in a way, is this going to just resolve itself? And we're going to see if there's 75,000 dead people in New York City in two weeks, we're all going to be begging to stay inside. Otherwise, we're going to have to start opening this thing up. Well, I think that's. First of all, I think they're right. You know, I think 26 million people will probably be infected, and I think New York will hit its peak in the next couple of weeks. I just think that uh, what we're going to find out if if the current trends hold and they start doing antibody testing, which they are starting to do now in a more widespread way in the UK, we're going to determine that millions of people have already had it, that the virus is actually far more contagious than what we were led to believe, perhaps by as much as an order of magnitude. But if the virus is an order of magnitude more contagious, then that means that the fatality rate is an order of magnitude smaller, right? Because 10x more people had it, but the exact same number of people uh, died from it. And again, th- this isn't in any way meant, meant to imply that I don't think that the, that the virus is serious. In particular, for people in at-risk categories, for people above 70, the virus can be very, very serious. But I think that what we are going to discover is that many, many more people have already had it. Uh, and therefore, that rate of lethality, as I say, is much, much smaller. How do you square this with uh, the the sort of media reporting? I mean, the media, the on-site media yep. reporting from places like New York with these poor nurses and, and doctors who are killing themselves every day uh, to try to to try to save as many people as possible. And you can tell, I mean, it's legitimate frustration. A lot of these people are devastating. They're watching person after person after person die. How I mean, it, it can't just be that it's a normal flu season and that sort of stuff is happening, can it? Well, it can't be that it's a normal flu season. Whatever it is, it's in addition to a normal flu season, mm-hmm. right? I don't think there's any there's any denying that something extraordinary is happening. Something is happening that is bolted on to whatever our normal fatality rates. You know, one, one of the questions people ask uh, online a lot during this time has been, you know, why don't we have more hospital capacity? Well, we don't have more hospital capacity because we don't need it ordinarily. One of the things that the market is particularly good at, that the invisible hand is particularly good at, is over time calibrating exactly how, excuse me, exactly how much need there is in the country for any kind of good service product. You know, we know exactly how much toilet paper to put in every store, convenience store, grocery store, in every county across the country. You could never plan that from the top down. You know, a centralized governing toilet paper authority could never figure out exactly how much toilet paper to put into Slayton, Texas, grocery store, my hometown. Uh, But the invisible hand can do that. What the invisible hand isn't great at is preparing for extraordinary circumstances. When something happens that, you know, the market will calibrate over time, it will adjust over time, and certainly even then faster than and more efficiently than a centralized governing authority. But we don't have hospital beds and ventilators to put up with a, a catastrophe like this because there aren't catastrophes like this. You know, you I, I remember in the first week of this really becoming widespread in the States, I read something that 80 percent of the hospital beds in New York are already full. And it was you know all in bold <laughs> font. Right. Uh, and I thought, right, but there aren't any cases yet. What you're telling me is that 80 percent of the hospital beds in New York City are always full. You mean that there's a, the correct number of hospital beds in New York City for day to day operation. They have about a 20 percent cushion there to deal with the extraordinary. Well, we're in something that no one is denying uh, isn't extraordinary now. The question is, is it catastrophic? And and that's where I'm a bit skeptical. And I and you say, what is the media's responsibility in this? One of the things that this moment should remind us, if not teach us, is that uh, 
if you'll excuse the French, nobody knows <laughs> uh, the experts. The experts know more about the things for which they are experts than you or I do. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. You know, climatologists know more about the climate than I do. I have no idea what the uh, air temperature is one mile above the surface of the equator. That's not something I know. I assume experts on climatology do know that. Experts on virology understand this virus far better than I do. But being an expert on something, uh, while it does give you expertise on that, something doesn't give you expertise on society as a whole, on society at large. Climatologists are not experts on how you navigate an economy, on how you keep 7 billion people in the world moving further and further out of poverty as we have over the last century. And the same with these virologists and epidemiologists. They've, they've given us their best guesses, and their best guesses are probably better than your best guess or my best guess would have been, but they didn't have the complete data set. You know, the Imperial College, one of the co-authors of mm -hmm. the report who said that there were going to be 500,000 deaths in the UK and 2 million deaths in America. He revised his own numbers down today to fewer than 20,000 deaths in the UK, meaning he reduced it by an order of magnitude and then reduced it again by half. Now, he's an expert. I'm, I'm certain he knows more about virology uh, than either of us. If he, if he knows anything about it, he knows more <laughs> about it than I do. Mm -hmm. But we were letting that guy tell us how we should order society as recently as three days ago. And that's a real mistake. That's why I'm not a technocrat. I don't think you find the five smartest guys in the world and let them run the world. You know, expertise requires narrow focus and running society, running a country takes a much broader focus than that. It really is a, a great um, example of the, the folly of progressivism as a whole. I mean, when you look at this, mm. you see, I mean, if we wanted Dr. Anthony Fauci to be president, we could have elected him. Um, you know, this is <laughs> exactly and he's a smart guy and it seems like a great guy. But like when you have these people out there who are so focused on this one thing, they're not looking at, you know, the person's people's jobs, people's happiness, people's freedoms. Those aren't things they need to consider. And Fauci, to his credit, has said that, like, I don't have to consider everything that, that the president does. His job is a lot harder. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, to your point about the, the entire kind of Democrat perspective, the, the left wing perspective on how to order society really is to subordinate your own common sense to subordinate the, the invisible hand, the collective wisdom of, of the society, and instead empower a couple of very, very powerful overlords who are mm. you know, very smart and very uh, expert and, and you know, have a nice crease on their gene as David or on their pant, as David Brooks might uh, tell us, and subordinate to them all of our common sense and decision making. And you just can't run a country that way. Um, how do you rate uh, Donald Trump's performance uh, throughout this uh, crisis? Hmm. You know, uh, I didn't vote for the president in 2016. Uh, I'm, I'm one who's been a little bit off-put by the sort of Trump reformation of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like the Trump sycophancy. I don't like people who say the president's handling of this has been spot-on, superb, perfect, perfect, glorious. <laughs> I don't think that's true. However, uh, he's gotten better, and he's gotten better, and he's gotten better uh, every day that this crisis has gone on. I think this has been the best week of his presidency. I, uh, I think... For the first time this week, I'm truly glad that Donald Trump is our president. I'm glad we have a man who is skeptical of experts, who doesn't like to be told what to do, who's a bit hornry, who actually has some skin in the game in the economy. You know, Donald Trump is going to have to lay people off. He's going to have to fire people, as so much of his money is made in the hospitality industry. And unlike the people who say, oh, you just want to put, you know, the economy above human lives, Donald Trump knows that the economy is human lives. It's human effort. It's the livelihood of millions and millions of people. He's had to deal with the pain of letting people go 
before watching people's lives fall apart uh, when they lose their jobs. I'm glad we have a guy with that kind of perspective in the White House in this moment. Uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with the job the president's doing, especially right now. All right, last one for you. Uh, let me take you ahead yeah. 10 years into the future, 15 years into the future. You look back at okay. the g- giant... Bi- I'm looking more and more handsome. You are, yeah, very very, very much so. I mean, you've kept, uh, you've really kept uh, the aging <laughs> off completely. Um, you uh, yeah. you uh, look back at this bill they just passed, uh, or they're pass- in the middle mm-hmm. of passing, multiple trillions of dollars, this rescue. How do we view this 10 or 15 years into the future? Wow. I can only tell you how I view it now, which is that it's a disgrace. It's unbelievable to me that Democrats basically get their wish list through anytime there's a crisis. Mm. Uh, They never let the country suffer uh, without cramming through all of their policy preferences. And and candidly, I just can't believe that the Republicans fall for it every single time. It's the largest spending bill in history. It gives the government stakes of many of the businesses who take uh, any of the bailout money. And, and by the way, it's, we're being bailed out not from bad decision making, not from risky behavior. We're being bailed out from the government commanding by fiat that we not work. Mm-hmm. The government told us we can't work. Uh, so the government owes owes these businesses and owes these employees uh, some money. Candidly, I think that if you're going to tell people they can't work, you should give everyone their monthly revenue. You know, a guy who makes $10,000 a month, $120,000 a year guy spends $10,000 a month. A guy who makes uh, $2,000 a month spends $2,000 a month. Now we can say, well, they shouldn't. People should all have a cushion. Maybe it's a little easier for the guy making $10,000 a month to have a cushion. That's wishful thinking. That is not how human nature works. A guy with a $5,000 mortgage that he can't pay because the government forced him not to go to work for the last three weeks is no better off than a guy with $600 in rent who can't pay it because the government forced him not to work. The government, cre- we did not create COVID-19. We didn't create it. We did create our response. And the fact that the Republicans are empowering the Democrats uh, to push through their policy initiatives right now, I, I think is a, a far more damning, uh, my assessment of them is far more damning for that than for anything else that's happening right now. It's great perspective from the very youthful looking for 15 years older, Jeremy Boring. He's the co-founder <laughs> and a COO of The Daily Wire, host of a backstage podcast. Uh, make sure you check it out. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun as well. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Back in a second. COVID ICU in my hospital and um, I don't know what the f- just happened for the past 13 hours honestly guys it felt like I was working in a war zone um, completely isolated from my team members limited resources limited supplies limited responses from physicians because they're just as overwhelmed as we are dealing with a ton of other stuff so basically I just spent the last 13 hours like treating two critically ill COVID patients on the vent basically by myself. And this is my new normal for the next however many months that it takes for this virus to die down. So, like, I'm already breaking. So for people, please take this seriously. This is so bad. Uh, 
man, this is tough stuff. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing. We were just talking about how some of the new information looks a little bit more optimistic. Maybe uh, some of the threats uh, against society in general are maybe a little overstated and maybe it'll come back down to earth. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of human cost here, uh, not just the people who die, but people like her who is working uh, in the medical field doing, honestly, at this point, heroic work. I'm so glad that this country doesn't have to depend on me for anything. I, it would be, uh, we would be screwed because I can't, 13 hours. I mean, the only thing I can do for 13 hours is sleep. So uh, thank God there's people like her out there actually doing this stuff. And, you know, you listen to these stories and it's really, it's really rough. I mean, there's obviously something happening here. We don't know how serious it is. We don't know if shutting down the entire economy is, is the right thing, but whatever it is, it's ugly. Uh, and uh, we're going to see a lot more of this, unfortunately, in the coming months. In fact, uh, I mean, you, you talk about somebody, if you don't think you can get this thing. If you think you're, you're, you're going to be able to skate uh, free without touching it, I hope you're right. But the guy, uh, Dr. Ian Lipkin, is a, is a doctor who is a medical advisor on the movie Contagion. He was the medical advisor for Contagion. And now he has coronavirus. It looks like he's going to be okay. The symptoms aren't, aren't uh, all that brutal uh, for him, luckily. Um, he's miserable, though. He says, I would like to, um, he actually admitted this. He said, uh, if it can hit me, it can hit anybody. That's the message I want to convey. Uh, it's all over the United States. He told Lou Dobbs the other night, we don't know when we're going to get this under control. Uh, we have porous borders between city, states and city, uh, cities. And unless we're consistent, we're not going to get ahead of this thing. We've made this point a lot here on this show. Um, the border is a massive part of this. Most countries aren't doing anything. And what's interesting is all these projections were based on whether if you did nothing, you didn't, you didn't do any self-distancing, you didn't do any isolation. Um, well, you know, interesting uh, to see at the end of the day that there's going to have a lot of tests. We're going to have a lot of test cases on doing nothing because a lot of these countries are not doing anything. And who knows what's going to happen uh, with this as we go forward. We will continue to watch it. And, uh, I, you know, I look forward. I look forward to the day that we can talk about something, anything else, anything else. I'm so sick of talking about the coronavirus. I want it to go away. Yes, of course, to save human lives. More, more particularly to save me from having to talk about it again. Back in a second. Welcome to the program. Our second Jeremy of the night. Yeah, two in one night. How about that? Who's delivering like this for you other than me? Nobody. Nobody's doing that. Jeremy Dice. He's with us. He's the special counsel of uh, for litigation and communications for First Liberty, as well as the host of the First Liberty Briefing podcast. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the program. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. These are weird times, man. I mean, this is uh, one of the craziest things. I mean, the craziest thing I can ever remember in my entire life. Um, we are all making very strange sacrifices and doing very strange things on a daily basis in this hope that this is just going to go away at some point relatively soon. Um, but uh, there's still limits, right, with the Constitution. You can't, the government can't just tell us to do anything that they want to make us do, can they? 
No, they can't. I mean, look, you can disembody guests on your own program, but you can't have the government telling you where you can and cannot worship, at least not permanently. Uh, in, in this situation, look, th this is unprecedented clearly in our lifetime, but it's not unprecedented throughout history, that's for sure. Back in 1918 with the Spanish flu, this was uh, another issue back then as well, where the, the, the city of Washington, D.C. asked its churches to stop meeting, and there was necessary pushback to that. They said, wait a minute. We, we, we've kind of enjoyed this right of uh, assembly, this freedom of, of worship, this religious freedom that we have here. Should we be doing this or not? The pastors actually got together and voted on whether or not they were going to agree with the city health department. And they went on record with a vote to say that they would cheerfully agree. Why? Because they knew it would save lives. And out of love for neighbor, they were willing to set aside uh, their age-old practice of meeting together to come up with more creative ways to be able to do basically the same thing for a short period of time in order to maintain their religious convictions. But that's the key thing. It's a short period of time. It's temporary. It cannot be permanent. And to the extent that we're going to be asked to uh, dis, uh, distribute our membership of churches back home through live streaming or drive-in church for a permanent period, that's not going to fly either. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I uh, I am very concerned um, about what happens after this is all over. I mean, this is a serious situation, and I think we all take it really seriously, but on the other side of this is a real fight, I think, for liberty that has been lost over this period. I do worry about that. Now, look, I, I think there's some hopeful signs as to what's to come because you're hearing the president saying, look, something's got to change. He's even throwing out the date of per perhaps even Easter that it's got to change. Look, we're, we're going week by week at the, on this at First Liberty Institute. In fact, uh, on Fridays, we're having a teleform at noon Eastern for pastors and religious leaders all over the country. Uh, tomorrow, actually, some folks from the White House will be joining us and, and hopefully we'll get some more updates on that. And we're paying attention to the executive orders that are being issued. It seems like almost every day, whether that's that's at the state, the uh, county, or the city level right now, all over the country. We're seeing all kinds of these things coming out, probably thousands of them at this point. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, and some of them, frankly, are downright ugly. Hmm. Let's talk about uh, Virginia specifically, because this, this is interesting. Uh, Governor Northam, who, how, how he's still in office, I have absolutely no idea after what has happened. Um, he put out an, uh, an, an order. It said effective 11.59 p.m. Tuesday, March 24th until April 23rd. All public and private in-person gatherings of 10 or more individuals are prohibited. He doesn't specifically say you can't have a church service, um, but uh, there's no reason to believe that uh, you know, worship services are exempt, is there? Well, what's more concerning to me right now, a couple of things. One, later in that executive order, I understand it points to that paragraph, among others, to say if you violate this paragraph, you would be subject to a, a misdemeanor, potentially criminal penalties for going over that. Now, the other thing that's concerning to me is tell me where the problem is here. I, I think you've got most people, most churches in Virginia and elsewhere that are more than happy to comply like the pastors in D.C. did back in 1918 mm -hmm. with these requests to, to kind of worship separately, to live stream. Now what happens though, if you've got a church, let's say a 60,000 square foot church or synagogue or whatever, that is turned to live streaming their services, but that needs 11 people in order to do the live stream. Uh, all of a sudden, those individuals are subject to criminal penalties if they get together to operate the computers and cameras and, and the things that like that that are necessary to live stream those services. Look, this is a tough time. I think we all recognize and understand that. And we're just trying to do our best. All of us everywhere are just trying to do our best. This is not the time to overreact and institute criminal penalties on people that might be trying to just simply do their best. The reality is this. 
the state is going to need the church and their ability to bring peace and calm and care to a very difficult situation during this time. At the same time, the state is going to need the church to be able to provide uh, its public health apparatus to address the effects of the COVID-19 virus here. I, I don't want to sound too, you know, kumbaya-ish here, but can't we just get along and try to work through this entire situation as best we possibly can? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that would make sense. And that's, I don't know, is that the sweet spot where they ask, but they don't demand? They ask without a, you know, the penalty of law, then they just hope that, you know, churches go along with it? Yeah, look, I think you've seen a very good model in that in the state of Texas, where Governor Abbott has basically done that very thing. He said, look, here's what's going on. Here's how you try to combat that. And what we're asking people to do is be responsible enough to, you know, do the right things. Wash your hands. Uh, stay six feet away from people if you at all possibly can. Uh, don't gather in groups of 10 or more if you can for a period of time. Look, we, we put guidance on this issue out around the country because we got so many calls to our offices from churches wondering what should we do here. And we said three things to them. And you can read this at firstliberty.org. We said, number one, we need churches to continue to serve their community. People who are passing out food now that students can't get their food at school, they're doing it at their churches now as a drive-through kind of a, an option for people. Continue to serve your community. Churches are going to be necessary in this whole thing for that very purpose. Secondly, temporary restrictions on gathering in, in large numbers like that, that's probably going to be okay under the Constitution. There's a longer analysis that's necessary there. You can read about that again at firstliberty.org. But the reality is a temporary ban for the state to be able to achieve a compelling interest like this. And I, I think a worldwide pandemic qualifies of a, as a compelling interest if I've ever heard one. That's probably going to be okay, but that has to be temporary. That probably goes to about maybe upwards of two months at the very best in terms of being temporary or not. The third thing we've said is that permanent bans on gatherings of people, uh, religious people for religious events and that sort of thing, that will never fly into the Constitution and nor will we stand for it either. Uh, look, there's even bans in uh, the state of Illinois right now. The executive order put in place there in Illinois says that it, it would be very difficult for people to actually gather to stream their church services during this time as well. That's going far too far right now. And it's right for the people to point that out and ask their governor to pull that back. One of the arguments that comes from uh, people who are looking for a, a ban for you know, a pretty lengthy period of time here, as long as the crisis lasts, is they point to um, several different situations overseas where tight-knit groups uh, in churches have been a massive cause of spread of this virus, where they look at themselves as people who are, you know, uh, uh, this is the most important thing to me, uh, my faith, and I'm going to go no matter what, and, you know, God will, you know, let whatever happens, happens. And they go there and they wind up spreading it all over the place and it causes a major outbreak. I mean, I understand the argument there. Um, if you have a situation like that, what do you do? do you, is, it, is it just enough to cover it for this short period of time? Or do you have to, uh, do you, I mean, do you just have to live with the consequences? I mean, this is America, it's not South Korea. That's right. Look, I, I think we have to exercise prudence in this situation. And, and we trust in this country the people to be able to govern themselves. And that includes giving them the, the space it needs that we need to be able to exercise that common sense as prudently as possible. Look, there is no crisis here, right? We have people that are voluntarily complying all over the country. Mm -hmm. My church, perhaps your congregation, other churches mm -hmm. are willing to meet online separately, whatever they have to do in order to, to be able to conduct their services and still remain faithful on things. And they're willing to put up with that for uh, that inconvenience for an extended period of time. 
but we also need to get ahead of this virus as well. I think I can only hear maybe two at most situations, one person where they were just insistent upon meeting right now, and that's the grand abnormality right now. And the second one, I think that they did and now have gotten some problems and say, hey, don't be like us. And so the, the situation kind of worked. They're, they're saying, oh, whoa, whoa let, let's govern ourselves here and exercise some prudence by, by maintaining our distance here. The reality is, both can happen. We can have our religious liberty during this time, making sure that we have our worshiping time, our time to gather, express our faith on things without the government saying you you shall stay in your homes or else uh, that kind of thing. That That's not necessary right now. You know, there's one thing more to point out here, Stu, just to kind of think about it for a minute. The reality is that what we're living in right now is precisely what the left has actually advocated for years, that you have this freedom of worship, right, that is confined to your home, confined inside your church, perhaps streamed on the internet that can be regulated. That's not uh, the freedom of religion that's promised under the First Amendment. And while we're in the middle of all this right now, it's good for us to kind of look around and say, you know, this is a vision that some have for this country. There's a reason why it doesn't feel right, because it's not actually free. I do, uh, I do appreciate you being an adult on this because I, because part of me is like, you know, when I talk about like the Second Amendment, I get very nervous if they were to be like, oh, it's just a short term, we're going to take some of these rights away, it's okay. It does make you very nervous as to where we might go. Though I, I do agree, in this country, we probably have, you know, the the enough cultural sort of momentum to overcome this afterwards. At least I hope so. Um, I want to, I want to ask you about one other peculiar thing, particularly about. I know it's the, Virginia is like this, and there's a couple of other states as well, where. You know, they are saying that church services do not qualify as essential, but they're marking things like liquor stores as essential businesses that can remain open. And, you know, look, at, I'll be honest, at times during this, uh, the last couple of weeks, the liquor stores felt very essential. I'm going to straight out. It does. Um, but this is also a situation where people do go to these areas. They are maybe uh, dealing with a depression or really tough times. Um, they may wind up drinking more than they did before. A lot of things are going down, and this is when you need the leadership of the church kind of more than ever. And if you're not able to to meet anybody in person, uh, it's going to be a lot harder to to overcome those obstacles. How do you, how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Now, the reality is that we've got to keep these channels open, and this is again exactly why we don't want generally large government in place here that pushes out necessary entities like the church that that take care of so many people across this country on a variety of issues and a variety of fronts. And this is why it's best when government governs least and allows people to be free, and especially churches to do what they do so very well to alleviate those problems on the state. But uh, you pointed exactly to the right issue here. When, when the state is trying to achieve this governmental interest of stemming the effects of this worldwide pandemic, that's legitimate for them to be able to do, but they have to do that in a way that uh, we say in the law, is by the least restrictive means possible. And if they are not engaged in that least restrictive means, well then, they've, they've got some real problems on their hands. Look, we sent a letter last week, or I guess the beginning of this week, at, rather, to the city of Gainesville, which had uh, had shut down all gatherings over, I think, 50 people, but they exempted some things, including some liquor stores, but also offices and, and things like that. Uh, we sent the letter to say, look, I think you've gotten a, you've gone a little too far here. You're saying that 50 people can meet in an office, but 50 people couldn't meet in a church? That doesn't seem to be the right thing. They called us, thanked us for pointing that out, and now the county has stepped in to say, no, 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 we're going to exempt religious gatherings for these kinds of things. In other words, the germs spread in the same place, whether that's a movie theater or a church. You can't distinguish between the two, and if you do, you've engaged in something that the Constitution abhors. All right, Jeremy Dice, uh, Special Counsel for Litigation, Communications for First Liberty.
and host of the First Liberty Briefing podcast, also on the news and why it matters often. We've been on together. Thanks so much for coming on, Jeremy. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, back in a second. had the distinct pleasure today to hang out with Steven Crowder and Gerald and everybody over at uh, Louder with Crowder um, on today's episode. So check it out and, uh, you know, enjoy all my incredible Rocky Four references that I was able to work in. It's at louderwithcrowder.com. We'll see you tomorrow.